And would you like to turn to Paul's letter to the Romans and chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to read from the first verse. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Those of you who were with us last week know we're looking into the the latter part of chapter 7. And through that chapter, if you were to underline one particular word, you'd be underlining it all the way through. And that's the word I. Chapter 7 majors on that word I. We've been singing, it's all about you, Jesus. Well, chapter 7, it's all about me. And it's all about what we can't do. It's all about God's holy standards. And we're stuck with ourselves. We're faced with all our inabilities. So the dominant word through chapter 7 is the word I. But as we come into chapter 8, there's a very different theme. And if you were to underline the words the Spirit in chapter 8, you'd be underlining rather a lot. We move from us and what we can't do into the Spirit of God and what the Spirit of God does in us. A whole transformation takes place uh, as we move from one chapter into the other. And I want us this morning just to start into chapter 8 and probably get no further than just the first verse because in the first verse, virtually every word there carries a huge amount of weight. Every word there is very significant. So let's start with the first word, therefore. Those who have been with us as we've gone through this series in Romans will know that um, back in the start of chapter 5, that word appears, and I think on that occasion, um, I think I just preached on that word. I think we'll move beyond it today. But then, uh, just looking at the importance of drawing conclusions, of getting hold of truth, seeing the implications, seeing the application and living in the light of it. Back in chapter 5 and verse 1, there Paul said, Therefore, we, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Here in chapter 8, he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The same truth expressed just in slightly different words. In both cases, he has built up a picture Now he's saying, now this is the conclusion that we draw. There it's, we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Now it's in the light of chapter 7, which is all about being condemned. He says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Back in chapter 5, verse 9, he says, since we've been justified by his blood, how much more will will we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now, no condemnation. Since chapter 5, Paul has been dealing with issues that arise from what he was saying there, and now he comes back to what he was saying at the start of chapter 5. I've said before, I'll say it again, that the way Paul handles things here in Romans is a bit like 
back in the old days when we used uh, overhead projectors. And if you can remember those days, uh, you'd put an acetate on the overhead projector and it would project something onto the screen and then you could lay another acetate directly on top of it and it would add to the picture and you could, depending on what you were trying to present, keep adding acetates and you build up a cumulative picture stage by stage. If you took just one of those acetates, you don't have the whole picture. But it's when you put them all together, then it shows the complete picture. And here in Romans, that's what Paul is doing. Chapter by chapter, section by section, he's adding a bit more truth, building up a picture. And so we come here into chapter 8, and we're not through yet, but we're beginning to see how the whole thing fits together. And if you just take out a chapter and look at it in isolation... You haven't got the whole picture. And many people make that serious mistake with chapter 7. They lift out that and look at it and conclude that the Christian life is a pretty miserable existence. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? I know know what what I want to do, but I can't do it. It's continual failure. And they say, that's the Christian life. No, Paul is building up a picture. He's explaining some things that he's been stating before. So, back in chapter 5, he spoke about the two key men in history, Adam and Christ. Adam, the leader of a race. Christ, the leader of a race. We're either in Adam or in Christ. All of us born in Adam, by grace moved into Christ. You remember what we looked at there. And he concludes that chapter by saying, into that situation, law came in. Verse 20, in chapter 5, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. He deals with that again in chapter 7. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness. Now he's aware that people then might say, well, if grace reigns, if We're no longer under law, but in grace, does it matter how we behave? He deals with that in chapter 6. As we get into chapter 6, he shows us that the grace of God that brings us into Christ, brings us into his death on our behalf, dying to the sin that held us captive, his resurrection. So, of course, we live a new life. Grace doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. Grace means we're no longer slaves to sin where we can now deal with it, where before we couldn't. The grace of God has brought us in to a risen Savior, and now there is power to overcome sin. We mustn't forget chapter 6 when we move into chapter 7. If you take chapter 7 out, we're slaves to sin again. No, no, no. He said we're in Christ. He died. He rose again. Now we can overcome sin. But that gives rise to a question. Well, what about God's law? And that's what he deals with. He deals with that issue in chapter 7. And chapter 7 is not about the gospel. Chapter 7 is about what was there before the gospel. It's about the law. And he talks about the two husbands, if you remember, at the start of chapter 7. The law he represents as a husband who is both the best husband in the world and the worst. The best because he was always right. And the worst because he never lifted a finger to help. And that's what the law is. It's perfect, but it doesn't help us. The law shows us how we should be, but it doesn't enable us to be it. 
And so he then depicts that from uh, verses 7 through to the end in chapter 7, how the law is there staring us in the face saying, this is what God requires. And we can say, that's good, I wish I could be like that. But I can't. There's no problem with the law. But the problem is me. And in me, there is sin. And the law doesn't deal with sin. That's not saying me as a Christian, because in chapter 6 he says, we're not slaves to sin anymore. But in chapter 7, he's dealing with the issue of the law. Can the law, can rules and regulations, can good resolution make us any better? No. All that the law can do is bring us totally to the end of ourselves when we say, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? And it's at that point we hear the gospel. And it's at that point we hear God has got an answer to the situation. And the answer to the situation is the, go- the gospel of God, which is the, his power for the salvation of everyone who believes. We're not left in that miserable situation. That's where people were before Christ came. If that's where we were still to live, what was the point of Christ's coming? People had the law, but they couldn't do it. But now there's a gospel, a savior. And so he comes back now in chapter 8 to where he was before he went into chapter 7, Therefore, in the light of all that he's saying, chapter 7 leaves you feeling condemned. What a wretched man I am. He says, now there's no condemnation. No, we're not in that situation. God has changed everything. There is the good news of God's power to save. Therefore, in the light of all of that, there is no condemnation. Condemnation is more than a feeling of feeling condemned. Some people just reduce it to that. I I, I just feel everything's against me. I'm feeling condemned. It's not about that, although it includes that. It's talking here about final judgment. It's talking here about the judge on the throne delivering his verdict, a verdict condemned. It's the sentence and the punishment that follows. All of that is included in this word condemned. That final awful word from the judge on the throne, guilty, that then leads to punishment. And what he's saying here is there is now no condemnation. It's talking about final judgment. And it's saying there is no condemnation. There's no word from the throne saying guilty and there is no punishment following. We use the word in that way when we maybe see a a, a boarded up building and we say that's a condemned building. So we look at it, a condemned building, we know it's got no future. It's going to be demolished. Something else will take its place. it's, It's no use. It's a condemned building. We were condemned people. We were dead men walking. We had no future. But now there is no condemnation. That word no is also a stronger word than it appears in just those two letters, N-O. It, it, it should be, or it could be translated, and it'd be hard to fit it into a sentence, but it means there is none at all. There is not one. There is not a shred of condemnation. There's not, it's not that most is dealt with, but there's some we've still got to pay for. There is none at all. There is absolutely none No condemnation, no possibility of condemnation. It's a very emphatic word. There is absolutely no condemnation 
Now, notice that word, therefore there is now no condemnation. Something has changed. Judgment is future, the day of judgment. But for some, judgment has happened. It's in the past. Judgment took place when Jesus died, punished for sin. And because judgment is in the past, there is now No condemnation. It's dealt with. It's happened. Someone has suffered. The the verdict was given and the punishment was taken. And now, because of that, there is not a shred of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, if we're in Christ, are living in that now. We're living in a new era when... Sin is in the past, judgment is in the past, punishment is in the past, and all the blessings of the future are now available to us. All the blessings of the future are now open to us. As we were hearing earlier, there are no doors saying no access. The way is totally open. There is now, in this era in which we are living, No condemnation, no forbidding words saying, you can't come here. It's all dealt with. We're living in a new era. At least, not everyone is. Because Paul then qualifies that, or explains it, therefore, in the light of all that is said, in the chapters leading up to this point, there is now absolutely no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This is not universal. It's not as if what Jesus did then means everyone ultimately is in a different position. Everyone ultimately is saved. No, for many, or for some, there is still judgment as a future certainty. In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of the Hebrews makes that very clear. In Hebrews chapter 9, And verse 27, it says, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The destiny of man is to die and then face judgment. Christ died and accepted judgment for many, not for everyone. It's for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ. And Paul obviously has expounded that phrase, referred to it already back in chapter 5, in Adam, in Christ. In chapter 6, he has spoken about being in the death of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus, dying So the the old life that we lived, of failure, sin, all of that died. Jesus rose again, we rose again. He lives forever, we live forever. We are in Christ, in his death and in his resurrection. But of course it goes on. Because we are in Christ now. He is ascended. 
The day came after the resurrection, after spending 40 days with his disciples, explaining things to them, when he felt he had made the point, they understood now how his coming was the fulfillment of all the scriptures. Then he takes them out, and this incredible sight happened. There are many things in scripture that I would love to have seen, and this is one of them. I, there's some things, you, if you try and picture these... If I try and picture things, I just can't imagine it. Can you imagine? They're standing there with Jesus, and suddenly he lifts off the ground and keeps going till he's gone through the clouds. I mean, think, did it happen slowly? Did it happen like a rocket? Was there a cloud of dust? I mean, what? How? And, and then they get told off for looking up. You think, well, of course they're going to be looking up. They've just seen their friend disappearing through the clouds. But he went. His time on planet Earth, in the flesh, finished, and they see Jesus going up. And then, two angels appear, rebuke them for looking up, which was a bit, I think, unfair. But, and they say, this Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. So now, he's gone. He said to them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Where I am? you can be also. They saw him go. There's no doubt about it. It's not that one day he just wasn't around anymore. They saw him go. They know, we know, Jesus is now in heaven, visibly going up, and there he is now, not just in heaven, but seated at the right hand of God. That's how the the apostles preach it in Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out, Peter is saying on the day of Pentecost, has poured out what you now see and hear. Jesus ascended and exalted to the right hand of God, and having come back into heaven, he receives from the Father the promise that is there right through the Old Testament. A day will come, God had promised, when he would pour out his Spirit on all flesh. It would no longer be trying to obey the law and failing. A new day would come when God's law would be kind of implanted into people because God was going to put his spirit in people. No longer an external law saying thou shalt not, but now God's law in people's hearts so that they want to do it. A change of nature. That's what God had promised. When Jesus ascended, he receives from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and pours out the Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, his disciples received that promised Holy Spirit in dramatic power. They heard what could only be described as like a violent wind, and there's fire filling the place, and they're suddenly speaking in languages they never heard and never learned, and in those languages, they're praising God and exalting God. A new day had dawned, and we live in that new day. We are in this Jesus, in in this one who died, rose again, ascended, and is now positioned at the right hand of God. What does it mean to be on the right hand of God? It's a place of supreme authority. 
That's why Jesus said to his disciples, greater things than these you'll do because I'm going to the Father. When he was with them, he did majestic, mighty things. But as a man, a man full of the Spirit. But the day was going to come when he would defeat death and be in the place of supreme power. Now, he's not located in just one place. He's everywhere through his people. And he hasn't changed. He has now given his Spirit to us so that we can live new lives. We're not languishing in Romans chapter 7. No, that's something Paul adds in there to explain. For people who are going to ask questions, well, what about the law? Well, that about the law. It can't actually bring us life. It only, in fact, because of who we are, brings death. Because it tells us what we shouldn't do, and we find ourselves doing it. So we've now broken a law. And those who sin will die. The law doesn't help people. If it had, Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. But God's purpose was always that people should come to a point when they come totally to the end of themselves, say, what a wretched person I am. I can't ever in myself please God. But we don't have to. The God of amazing grace has planned this wonderful salvation. And we are in Christ ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father. He's received the Spirit, and he has freely poured out the Spirit. And so Paul expresses it, and this is Paul's gospel. He just revels in it. He loves it. You can't keep him quiet about it. And in Ephesians, writing to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, he bursts into praise to God. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's a pretty amazing statement. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Or it could be translated, every blessing of the Spirit in Christ. It's because we're in Christ. Christ has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. So, What has Christ got? He's got all that the Spirit can do. And we are in Him. So we have received in Christ every blessing of the Spirit. No wonder Paul, as he meditates on that and he's got hold of it, he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is amazing. We're not slightly blessed. We're not occasionally blessed. It's everything that the Father can give us. He's given to His Son, and we're in His Son. We've got it all. It's all ours, and there are no doors saying no entry. For there is now no condemnation. Judgment is past. Now, at the end of chapter 7, and we can identify with much of what Paul says there, we, can, we know we fail. We know we get things wrong. And we could perhaps sometimes feel, oh, what a wretched person I am. But we're not condemned. Condemnation is past. It is dealt with. We're not in that position. We don't come groveling to God, saying we're unworthy. We don't come groveling to God and say, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, as it says in chapter 7, verse 17. We say, I know that something very good lives in me. I know that your spirit lives in me. 
I know that you've given me every blessing of the Spirit is in heavenly places in Christ because I know I'm in him. I know, therefore, in the light of all of this, this is true. We know it. And so it's ours. Not to live as chapter 7 says, but to now live not according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. There is no condemnation. We're lifted out of the futile, frustrating, trying and failing that he speaks about in chapter 7. And we're lifted into power and new prospects where all that heaven can offer is given to us in Christ and we are in him. Now Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Why? Because we're in Christ. And we don't drift in and out of Christ. This is a permanent position. We were in Adam. God, by his grace, took hold of us, took us out of that category, put us into another category. We're now in his Son. And we don't shift from there. We're there forever. Which means we never drift back into condemnation. This is not a fluctuating position. This is permanent. No matter how we feel, no matter what we've done, no matter how ashamed of ourselves, disappointed in ourselves we are, we're in Christ. Sometimes we can be standing with our head held high and we're in Christ. Sometimes we just feel flat on our face because we've failed yet again. But there, flat on our face, we're in Christ. And in either position, no condemnation because we're in him. And because we're in him, every blessing of the Spirit available, whether head held high or flat on our face, it's all available because of Christ. It's all because of him. It's all what he has made available. Now, Paul, as he goes into this chapter, then begins to develop some of the implications of this. And we will look at some of those in future weeks, I guess. But as the story develops... He he looks at what it means that there's no condemnation. He looks at what it means that we're in Christ in this wonderful, privileged position. He goes on to speak about this spirit that we've received. He says uh, uh, down in verse 15 and 16, a a spirit of adoption, a spirit of sonship. We're, We're sons of God. Jesus is son of God. We're in him. Jesus, as a son, is an heir of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're in him, this wonderful position of sonship, which then he moves on in verse 17 and onwards to then speak about suffering. Our position in Christ, our, the, fact, the fact that condemnation is past and we're securing him means that when we go through suffering, we go through that in Christ. And we go through that knowing there's no condemnation. We're not going to think, oh, I deserve this. I'm suffering because God is angry with me. Things have gone wrong because I did this. No, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we take that security, that position, into whatever life throws at us. And Paul there, in in verses um, 
uh, verse 17 onwards through to 25, he paints a very big picture. He speaks of a world that is groaning in pain. And he says we live in a world that has, he doesn't say it here, but that's what he means. We have earthquakes, we have tsunamis, we have all kinds of things that, that go wrong. There's suffering. This world is writhing in pain and we suffer along with it. But as we do so, we go through knowing no condemnation. No con- it's not because of my sin. It's not because I've done anything wrong that I'm suffering like this. I'm, I'm secure in Christ. And I know, as it moves on, he speaks about security. I know that I will see him. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. That is a done deal. I will be with him forever because I deserve it. No, but because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Marvelous implications come out of this. We are not doomed. Picture, he speaks of a world that is groaning in pain. And he says we live in a world that has, he doesn't say it here, but that's what he means. We have earthquakes, we have tsunamis, we have all kinds of things that that go wrong. There's suffering. This world is writhing in pain and we suffer along with it. But as we do so, we go through knowing no condemnation. No condemnation. It's not because of my sin. It's not because I've done anything wrong that I'm suffering like this. I'm, I'm secure in Christ. And I know, as it moves on, he speaks about security. I know that I will see him. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. That is a done deal. I will be with him forever because I deserve it. No, but because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Marvelous implications come out of this. We are not doomed to fail like the man of chapter 7. We are destined for glory because we're in Christ, because no condemnation. Now, practically, of course, we have an enemy. The Bible variously calls him an accuser, a slanderer, a liar. None of them are particularly encouraging titles, are they? An accuser, a slanderer. He will slander us and slander God to us. He will slander other people to us. He's a liar. He will accuse us. How do we cope with that? Well, I'll tell you how I cope with it. When, and when I hear his accusing voice, or oh, you failed there, you didn't pray enough, you as he accuses, I, I don't deny what he says. I, in fact, agree with it. And when he accuses me, I tend to say, that's true, but that's only, that's only the half of it. I'm much worse than that. I'm considerably worse. It's not that I just did that wrong. I've done millions of things wrong. And I've got a savior. And the father says, not guilty. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As one of the old hymns says, I can my fierce accuser face and tell him, thou hast died. That's the way we deal with it. We have a Savior who died in our place. Yes, he'll accuse us. Yes, particularly, he, he, he doesn't play by the rules. We can be physically low. There can be a lot of things happening and we're feeling under it all. And then he'll come in with his accusations. How do we cope with it? got a savior. We're in Christ. No condemnation. Who do we believe? The liar or the God of truth? 
we believe the God who is always true. And he says, in Christ, not guilty. And so we deal with these things. We stand our ground because all the building blocks of truth are in place. We've seen it. We've gone through chapter by chapter. We've seen it. I see that's true. Oh, therefore that is true. Therefore that is true. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It makes sense. I believe it. I stand on it. And it sees me through. And positively, we can approach God with great confidence. We don't come with head low feeling unworthy. We know we're unworthy, but we also know we're in Christ. And so again, the writers of the Hebrews, to go back to that in Hebrews chapter 4 this time, Hebrews chapter 4, from very familiar words to many of us, verse 16, he says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. How can we come before God with confidence? Well, because we're in Christ and because there is no condemnation. We can come before God's throne, which is wonderfully a throne of grace. We can come with very big prayers. We can come with outrageous requests. We can come to God Not as those who deserve nothing, but we come, oh, we're taught to pray, in the name of Jesus. We come in his name, knowing, head held high, no condemnation. It's not saying, I don't deserve anything, but can I just have this little favor? Well, we may pray like that. Or we may think, what's the point of me praying? It would be much better if someone else, a great, someone who's really holy if they prayed. That's... That's believing the accuser. No, no condemnation. We are all, if we are in Christ Jesus, on equal ground. As we come before God in prayer, we come, as it were, with equal value. Each of us in Christ can come with big requests. And we are not daunted by the the scale of the need. Jesus said, we can say to a mountain, be removed and cast in. We we don't look at the scale of the problem and say, I couldn't possibly ask about that. I don't know how to pray anyway. No, we don't know how to pray. And Paul deals with that in this very chapter. The Holy Spirit helps us. So we give our pathetic, stumbling little prayer And the Holy Spirit takes that up and reinterprets it before God. And our little prayer comes before the Father as a prayer that's in tune with his will. Yeah, it's great. All that God has provided for us in Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we come with confidence before God. That's the gospel. Chapter 7 is the law. It's not the gospel. Many Christians have believed it is the gospel and live miserable lives. I was taught all that stuff when I was first a Christian in my early years of my life. I was taught to pray and I prayed it again and again. Uh, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. And that was how I was taught to pray. To be just aware of sin. Say, I'm unworthy. What a worm I am. Well, I am a worm, but I'm a worm in Christ. (laughs) 
And there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's on that basis that we come positively approaching God with confidence, knowing he's our father, and miraculously, I'm his dear son. And I'm in the son that he loves. And I stand to inherit. It's amazing. That's the good news. Now, we need, as I said, to have all the building blocks in place. We need to see truth upon truth, how it fits together. And then we're in a very strong position. Paul here is speaking from a position of strength and speaking about a position of strength. Are you enjoying this? Let me ask you a question. Are you, assuming you're a Christian, assuming you're in Christ, are you glad that you're you? Do you ever find yourself wishing you were someone else? It's natural to do that. Many people do. But I'll suggest to you, if you get hold of this, if you see what God has done for you, you wouldn't want to be anyone else. If you see the grace that he's given to you, how he's loved you, how he took hold of you, calling you by name. If you'd been someone else, when he called your name, you wouldn't have heard it. He called you by name. And he's put you in Christ, blessed you with every blessing of the Spirit in heavenly places. Would you want to be anyone else? Could, it, could you possibly wish you were not you? God loves you. And that's where you are. You got hold of that? Does it bless you? Does it thrill you? And on that basis, do you say, I've got to worship God. Because, wow, I can worship God. And I'm going to come with confidence to him. I'm going to enjoy him. I'm going to enjoy being me. And I'm going to enjoy me being loved by God. I'm going to enjoy my heavenly father. I'm not going to act as if I'm somehow rejected. That's not true. It's the liar who says that. The truth is accepted and drawn near. I'm going to enjoy. Are you enjoying God? Are you enjoying your relationship with him? Are you enjoying being you, a child of God? Because you can. It's our great privilege in Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so finally and briefly, if you're here this morning and you don't honestly know that you're in Christ Jesus, hey, do you see what you're missing? Do you see what actually you can't possibly live without? You need the Savior. And maybe if you're here this morning, not in him, you're here because he called you here, because he wants you. Let's pray.